Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Um, So we are going to continue our service today. And those of you who don't know me, my name is Bryce Ballard. I'm the interim youth pastor here at Redeemer. And we're going to continue going about our theme for the summer, which is the way as we continue to look at different spiritual disciplines that mark a Christian. And I really love how we've kind of introduced this theme this summer in the sense of that these disciplines that we're talking about don't make God love us more but yet they mark who we are as a Christian. They mark that we are set apart, right, as something different and new in Christ Jesus. And so today's theme is going to be service. Today's theme on the way is going to be service. But I kind of wanted to start the service with a caveat. What I'm not going to talk about today, mainly because I think as a church, we've done a phenomenal job already kind of laying the foundation of this, is I'm not going to necessarily talk about programmed or pre-planned service. You know, service that's kind of in our calendars where we look and we say like, hey, I'm serving, you know, kids ministry this summer. I love that. I love that Jeff has stood up and said like, hey, I commissioned the men, you know, get involved in the kids ministry this summer. What a phenomenal calling, right? And then my small group peeps out there where you at you know I see the little rose back there shout out you know it's like I love that my small group has been like you know we're, we're gonna pour into the lives of the youth this summer that has been such a blessing to me to just have a community that's willing to like put on their calendar and say we're gonna be intentional about this service here so I think we've already like kind of come around and done that well today I want to more focus on how can we serve in our day-to-day lives as we're going about and walking through our week, as we're getting coffee, as we're going to lunch, as we're coming home from a long day at work, how can we seek to serve those around us? When I was 16 years old, I started my first job, some of you may know the place, J.C. Penney. <laughs> it was the worst. I mean, I absolutely hated that job. I was sales support associate, which basically meant that you walked around and you folded clothes all day long. You know, so those of you who like to go into the store and like you're looking at the pile of clothes and it's small, medium, large, you're like, I need a large. And you grab it from the bottom of the pile and you pull it out and all the clothes go everywhere. Someone's got to come back behind you and fold them, right? That was me. You know, you go in the fitting room, you're trying some on, you're like, eh, I don't think I'm going to get this. You just leave it in the fitting room. Someone's got to go put that back. That was me. And it was miserable. Christmas time especially was the worst. We would start at 7 p.m. And I kid you not, we would be working till 3 a.m. There would not be an article of clothing folded or put on a hanger in the entire store. And at 3 a.m., it's not that we got done putting the store back together. No, no, no. J.C. Penney was just like, we don't want to pay you anymore. You're just going to have to go home. Half the store still looked like a tornado had run through it. So I was talking to my friend at school one day and I was like, listen, like, I got to get out of this job. I despise this. And he was like, well, I might have an opportunity for you at a place that I work at. And it was a hibachi grill. Anyone been to hibachi grill before? I love hibachi grills. I just think they're so fun. We were on vacation um, at the beach and I like begged the family to go to hibachi grill. We ended up not sitting at the grill, which made my heart sad because this is fun, right? They throw shrimp in your mouth. They all make the same jokes, right? They put the volcano onion going across the table, make the fried rice into a heart and make it be, 
Like, that's where I worked. <laughs> and I started out as a busboy. And I loved the job. Y'all are like, Bryce, you're weird. But I loved it. It was so fast-paced. You were always doing something. Like, the goal of the job was to be fast. Like, you want to, as soon as that table gets up, we want eight busboys descending upon that table and turning it over as fast as we can. And so we would, like, we would race. If two tables got up at one time, we'd, like, look at each other. Be like, you ready? Go. You know, like throwing all the plates into the bucket, like ready to go. I just loved it. I ate it up and I was good at it. So eventually the boss was like, hey, why don't you become the busboy manager? It was the same job. I was still doing the same things. And, you know, being a busboy isn't glamorous, right? It's like, it's pretty nasty. You get used to it. You know, you get used to picking up after people's half-eaten food or the six-year-old who told their parents that they weren't feeling very good, but their parents brought them to the hibachi grill anyway, and then kind of know how that turns out. But you know, like, you got used to that, and I just loved, like, I'm just gonna serve alongside these guys, and then I just made the schedule, right? That was the only thing different. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. Then my boss came along, I'd been getting pretty good at that job, and he was like, listen, you can make significantly more money if you become a server, a waiter. And I was like, well, tell me more. That sounds great. And so I made this jump to all of a sudden being a server or a waiter at 17 years old. And when I made that jump, something changed in my heart. After a while, I was too good to do the job of the busboy, right? Like even a little spill would happen at a table. Instead of just grabbing a towel and cleaning it up, I'd go be like, listen, you're like, you need to do your job, busboy. Go clean up that spill. I looked down upon him. These very people that I like served with, that I was like part of as a group, all of a sudden, even though ironically my role had changed to a server, I thought I was too good for the job that I had once done. And if you've been paying attention, like, because sometimes this is conscious and sometimes this is unconscious, but we live in a world that like continually teaches us that my role here is to be served and not to serve right? I mean, think about how we interact in our day-to-day lives when I go into somewhere or something expecting to be served, and I'm not served in the way that I thought I should. Now, I'm not saying that, like, you know, when I pay for something that I should expect a certain amount of service or whatever, but, like, what comes about in my heart when I don't get that? Because if you're anything like me, and I'm sitting in that Dunkin' Donuts line at Knob Creek, which is always so long, Like, I'm getting, like, frustrated, and I'm getting angry, and I'm like, what is that in me? That as I go throughout my day-to-day life, I just have this, like, natural, sinful expectation that everybody's job around me is to serve me. And my primary purpose here is to be served. And And it translates. You know, we look at a lot of these big issues in our culture where, like, you know, where did that come from? How did that happen? And the reality is it's just these small decisions, these small steps that we take on a day-to-day basis to get us there. That eventually in our marriages, we look and we say, that person, my spouse's role is to serve me and make me happy. And if they don't, I have an out. That's sad. Or I just went, you know, a step too far with my boyfriend and girlfriend. And now, you know, we have a baby on the way, but I... I have an out because this is going to inconvenience me, so I'm going to take that out. These small subconscious thoughts of I exist to be served and not to serve ultimately lead to some pretty big reactions, 
some pretty big changes in our culture. And so today we're going to look at a passage. You know, when Jeff originally asked me, he said, you know, like, you're going to speak on service in this part of this series. I, I, was, I was bouncing around different passages because the one that initially I thought the Holy Spirit had brought me to, I was like, well, everyone's heard of this passage before. It's very common. It's, it may not be anything like specifically new for the believers, but the Holy Spirit just kept bringing me back to this passage. It's just like, Bryce, like, you can't get up there and talk about service without diving into this passage. Because if I had to exemplify service in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in one passage, it is this one that we're about to read. I mean, this passage, every time I go to it, it just blows my mind. The extraordinary humbleness of Jesus Christ, who is God, leaving the right hand of the Father and then serving his disciples in a way that just baffles me. And that if I'm honest, as I'm about to dive into this passage, still can't like fully wrap my mind around that God would do this for us. So if you would with me, open up to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And as you guys are opening up or clicking there with your cell phones, whatever you're going to do, I'm going to share a little background on this passage. So right before John chapter 13, Jesus is in this conversation with the Father. And he's in this conversation with the Father, and he comes to terms what, is, what has to be done, what must take place in order for the salvation of mankind to be necessary. And he asked the father, he says, look, like, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, the will of the father, who was to remain just, the perfect spotless lamb, had to be sacrificed for our sins. And so Jesus, in this conversation with the father, comes to terms with this. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 13. It says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's already a lot to unpack in this first verse. First of all, we know that the setting is going to be the feast of the Passover, a celebration and a time of remembrance for the Jews to remember how God mercifully passed over them in one of the plagues of Egypt, choosing not to inflict this plague upon his chosen people, as long as they sacrificed an unblemished, spotless lamb. And spread the blood of this spotless, unblemished lamb on their doorposts, God would mercifully pass over them as payment. If you've ever got the opportunity to like indulge and be a part of like a Jewish Seder for Passover, I mean, it blows your mind. I mean, it is powerful, just the way that it's led, and you take the bitter herbs, and then it ends with the sweet, and I mean, it's just really cool. If you ever get the chance to read about it, get involved, I mean, it's really amazing experience. So we know like this is the dinner that is about to take place, and it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. This theme of hour is just flowing all the way throughout John. In fact, this, this ambiguous, what would have been ambiguous term for the disciples, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, or my hour is coming quickly, is mentioned over 15 times in the book of John. And so Jesus knows at this point his hour is nearing. And again, that hour, as we know, is referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them 
to the end. As he's thinking about the end of his life, as he's thinking about this hour that is about to come, he's reminded of his love for his disciples. And this is no coincidence, make no mistake, that what he is about to do is an absolutely beautiful outpouring of this selfless love that he has for them. So verse 2, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, why would John randomly point out Judas and not any of the other disciples? Because what Jesus is about to do, I think a lot of times we're like, oh, that's so nice. Like, Jesus did that to people that he loved. Understand that the people at the table... And this moment of Jesus' service shining through in his love wasn't just people that were always on his side. No, the author wants to make it very clear that Judas, who was going to betray him, the very person who was going to kiss Jesus on the cheek as to signify to the officials that this is the one that needs to be thrown into prison, he is present in this moment. That is not a coincidence. The author wants to make sure that we understand. It wasn't just all like Jesus' best friends who were on his side that were present at this supper. Judas was present as well. And God had already put into the heart of Judas what was going to happen. The devil had already put it in his heart. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus in the last, some of the last moments of his life. If you've ever loved someone who has passed away, you know, a lot of times we hang on the last words that were spoken by them. We hang on the last moments that we spent with them. As we remember them throughout our day-to-day -day lives, these things come up and the significance of those last words and the significance of those last moments just hold an extra weight, right? They run through our minds and they run through our hearts. So it's no mistake that what Jesus is about to do, how he spends his last moments really with his disciples before he is taken into captivity, should hold an extra weight of significance for us. Like how is Jesus about to spend his last hours, his last meal with his disciples? How is he going to choose to teach them in these last moments? What is about to happen? Because his hour has come and he is about to return to the Father. So what's the, the lasting presence, the lasting statement, the lasting service that he wants to keep on his disciples' minds and keep on their hearts. Verse four is when this dinner starts to get extraordinary. Verse four is when this dinner starts to like, again, blow my mind. Because what Jesus does here, again, let's keep in mind, Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. And what he does here and the significance of every detail as he does it is just beautiful and blows my mind every time I read it. So look what he does. Verse 4, he rose from supper. Already in three words, Jesus is doing something that is counterculture. You know, the only people, as we learned about a couple weeks ago, as you're reclining at the table, who would be standing and moving around the table would be the servants who are placing the food on the table and refilling the drinks. Most likely, these were Gentile slaves, Gentile servants. But Jesus does something out of the ordinary. Jesus rises from supper. That was not to be done until the meal was complete. And although Jesus was surely at the head of the table, understand that when he rises from supper, put yourself in the disciples' shoes here as we walk through these next verses, their immediately attention is going to go to him and be like, okay, like, hang on. What's he doing? 
Something is, is different here. And so Jesus rises from supper, and then he lays aside his outer garments. I think the better Greek translation there is actually he lays down his outer garments. In fact, the same Greek phrase used here is used later in the book of John to describe Jesus as he's laying down his life for his followers. So Jesus rises from dinner and then takes off his outer garments and lays these outer garments down. Again, the disciples are like, what is he doing? Not only is Jesus getting up from the table, but now he's taking off his outer garments. And then taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And now if you put Jesus directly up next to a Gentile servant, he would look like he was in uniform. You know, he'd be the J.C. Penney people that used to make us all wear red. You know, it's like, this is what Jesus, like if they looked at him, it's like, oh, he's a Gentile slave. He's a Gentile servant right now. Jesus' outer garments are off, and he's got a towel around his waist, and he has marked and associated himself now with servitude, with being a servant. Verse 5, then he pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. What a beautiful foreshadowing of what is about to take place on the cross. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something here. He's trying to make them, when, when, when he's crucified, when, when the act is finally done, he's trying to make them think back to this moment. Because make no mistake, as Jesus places this clean towel around his waist, and as he gets on his hands and knees and takes his disciples' feet and washes their dirty, nasty feet as they would have been in sandals walking on these dust roads, make no mistake, the disciples' feet are now clean. But Jesus Christ's towel is now dirty. What a beautiful foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us on the cross here. As he takes our sin and swallows it and takes it unto himself. And he makes us clean and crucifies our sin with him. The disciples may not have understood what was going on, right? Like they just think like this is weird. And that is very clear in Peter's response. Look what Peter says. And Peter, it's like if I had to say, you know, who, who reminds me most of it's like Peter. And it's not because Peter was like this awesome, like godly man. It's because Peter just like always said things that just were in the tip of his tongue. And half the time he like regretted them. It's like as soon as it comes out of his mouth, he's like, oh no, like come back. And this is one of those moments, right? So Jesus is walking around, he's, he's washing his disciples' feet in this beautiful, symbolic, and foreshadowing act of what he's about to do on the cross, and he gets to Peter in verse 6, and it says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like you, Jesus, my rabbi, my master, like you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him and says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Obviously, right? Jesus' goal in this beautiful symbolic foreshadowing is to show them and make them think back to this moment. You may not understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. And Peter continues to put his foot in his mouth, right? Verse 8, Peter said to him, then fine, you shall never wash my feet. Like, if you're not going to explain it to me, then don't. Like, I can't let you, my rabbi, wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying that, like, you know, we, he's going to, you know, come descend down here in the middle of the circle and pull out a water basin, and we all got to make sure our feet get washed by him in order to be saved in this, like, very practical meaning of, of whatever is going on here. No, but again, he's pointing to a broader picture. He's saying, if I don't wash you here in this beautiful, symbolic, and foreshadowing act, you have no part in me. Because if you don't accept this washing here of me taking on your dirtiness and making you clean, then you're not going to believe in what I'm about to do on the cross of Calvary. And so Simon Peter then says to him, Lord, then, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. He's like, just pour water all over me then, you know, like wash all of me. And Jesus responds to him and says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, right? The one who has been redeemed, the one who has been united to Christ does not need to be washed. The work is finished. He has set you free except for his feet, but it is completely clean and you are clean, right? Now, commentators have all kinds of like theories for what this like except for your feet means, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Some people think it's referring to repentance. Some people think it's referring to progressive sanctification. Some people think, you know, again, he's just kind of pointing Peter back to the broader picture and what is happening here. If that's something that like you really want to dive into that open-handed issue, do it. It's a fascinating read. It's a fascinating study, but it's not the main point of the text, right? So let's stay focused here. But then he says, you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Again, the author reminding us in this moment that Jesus didn't just get on his hands and knees and wash the feet of the disciples who loved him and stayed on his side. He got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of Judas. When we think about this, how easy is it for us to serve the people that we love? <laughs> but if we're honest, even that's hard for us sometimes. Imagine serving, right, our enemies. That's extremely hard for us to do. Yet Jesus goes around this entire table and Judas is included in this beautiful act of him showing what is about to be done on the cross. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he says something to them. And again, I want you to hang on these words a little bit. Because these are some of the last words that Jesus like speaks directly to his followers. And as he just washed their feet and gives them this beautiful act of service, he's going to say something to them. This is what he says. Just listen. Just hear the words of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You see, one of Jesus' final acts that he does for his disciples is to serve them. And as Jesus serves them in this moment, he shows them the purest outpouring of his selfless love. And as his love is poured out for them in this moment, their lives are changed. Their eyes are opened. And then he turns to them and he says, go and do as I have done to you. 
And Jesus isn't saying that we all need to break out the water basins right now and like wash each other's feet, right? But what he is saying is that when we step out in service, in our day-to-day lives, again, I'm not talking about program service here. I'm talking about as you go to the coffee shop and the Holy Spirit taps on your shoulder and says, man, like that barista looks like they're having a bad day. How can you serve them today? When we choose to step out in faith in those moments, you better believe that the love of Christ shines through us. And when the love of Christ shines through us, lives are changed for his glory. And as we go about our day-to-day lives and we've had a hard day at work and we go home and the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder and says, you know what? Your spouse had a bad day too. Put your pride, put your arrogance, put your bad day to the side maybe for this moment and serve them because when you serve them, Christ's love shines through you. And when Christ's love shines through you, you better believe lives are changed for his glory. And when you go to lunch or when you go to work and you're interacting with your coworkers and you're interacting with your friends and the Holy Spirit is prodding you and leading you and saying, do you see them? When we choose to act on that moment, when we choose to act on that moment and serve and figuratively wash their feet, Christ's love shines through. And when his love shines through, you better believe lives are changed for his glory. The band is going to come up and play, and I want to continue on because in this same moment, in this same dinner, it is no mistake that Jesus chooses to introduce us to the Lord's Supper, to communion. It is no mistake as we take this in our hands that the very same dinner that Jesus chooses to get on his hands and knees and wipe his disciples clean as he takes their dirt and takes their filth and places it upon himself, it is no mistake that he chooses to share in the Lord's Supper with them. It is no coincidence that he laid down his outer garment as he foreshadows he was going to lay down his life on the cross. It is no coincidence that he wraps this clean towel around his waist and wipes them clean. It is no coincidence in what he is doing. And it is no coincidence that he carries on in this same meal to share what would be his last with his disciples. And so as this whole meal is just led and just ingrained in the gospel, so the Lord's Supper is as well. Because he takes the bread and he says, as I have laid down my outer garment for you, I'm going to lay down my life for you on the cross. And when I lay down my life for you on the cross, when I give my body to you, I am going to break the chains of sin and death. And you will no longer be bound by sin. And so he takes the bread. And if you would with me, he breaks it. And he says, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And as the disciples take and eat in remembrance of Christ, not only are they remembering the work that that he's going to do on the cross, but they also participate in that crucifixion with Jesus Christ as we are crucified with him. And it is no coincidence that then he takes the cup and he pours wine into the cup And he says, look, this is my blood poured over you. This here is taking you, the blemished lamb, the spotted lamb, and making you clean. 
because my holiness is now your holiness and my righteousness is now your holiness. You are now united to me. This is my blood poured over you. This is my blood poured out for you so that you may be made clean. And he says, take and drink in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we step into our weeks and our lives get busy and we get stressed, Lord, our natural reaction, my natural reaction, as you know, is selfishness. I get into the rut of thinking that everybody around me's job is to serve me. Lord, I ask for forgiveness for that. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the people that cross our paths, that you put in our paths on a daily basis. May you open our eyes to see those that need the service of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we serve them humbly, that they would see your love in us. And as they see your love in us, Lord, that lives would be transformed. Redeemer would be transformed. Johnson City would be transformed. For your glory, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful act of service that you have shown us in this passage today. May we remember, Father, how although you were God, you made yourself a servant so that we may be redeemed and set free. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.